And everyone else, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2 as we are continuing to preach through Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, and we're just preaching verse by verse through it. And so we've now arrived at Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And as you're turning there, uh, let me ask you this question. Who in here has had braces or a retainer before? Okay. Yeah, I, I, had, I had braces. Um, and, and why do people go to an orthodontist and get braces? And this can be interactive. You can shout it out. Why do people go to an orthodontist to get braces? Straighten out their teeth. Okay, yeah, people get braces to help line up their teeth, to, to take those teeth that are out of line and set them in line with the others. And for those of you that, have, that had braces, do you remember what it's like to go to an orthodontist for a checkup? I mean, just when you had gotten comfortable with your life, just when the braces felt good, just when you were starting to eat solid foods and corn on the cob seemed like a one-day attainable goal for you, just when all that happened, life was comfortable, things were good, you would go to the orthodontist, and what would they do? They would tighten the braces, and it would hurt again. Your teeth would ache and your mouth would hurt and you had to eat applesauce and baby food for days. And if your parents were really cool, maybe milkshakes. And it just ached. It it, it hurt to have braces. And then after the braces were, were done, you thought you were in the clear. But no, then you had to wear a retainer. And you had to put that on at night when you slept. And, and, and first, when you put on that retainer, how did it feel? It just, it hurt. And why did it hurt to put on a retainer? Is it because orthodontists are mean? Some of them, are, some of them might be mean, but it mainly hurts because something had started to get out of line, and when the truth of the retainer was put into your teeth, it hurts at first, until slowly but surely your teeth start to become realigned. Now, for those of you who never had braces, uh, feel free to reach out to one of those that have this morning to understand this illustration, maybe after the sermon. But I think everyone will be able to understand that in, in the Christian life, the Christian life is, is, is a life where once we come to faith in Christ, God is now helping bring everything in our life in line with the truth of the gospel. And just like braces, it can hurt at times. It can ache at times. And that that prefix ortho, it it means to be straight or to be in line. You see see an orthodontist to straighten out your teeth. Now, in Galatians 2.14, what Robin just read, Paul uses that same prefix ortho in the Greek when he says, when he's trying to describe Peter, Barnabas, and the others, that their conduct was not in step. That word is actually, it's not in line with the truth of, of the gospel. And Paul sees that their life is not in in line with the truth of the gospel, and therefore he's going to give Peter a loving rebuke. And so this morning we're going to talk about loving rebukes. And it's not because there's something that's happened in the church and we need to, and I'm here to rebuke you all this morning. We're talking about it because we're preaching through Galatians, and that's where we've arrived, and we're going to trust that God has his plans and purposes for those of you that are here to hear this message this morning. 
A loving rebuke is like putting on braces or a retainer. It exposes and corrects what is out of line with the truth of the gospel in us. It is for the person's good. Oh, but it, it hurts at times. It hurts. And you see, church, on the path to aligning our lives with the truth of the gospel, as long as sin is present, loving rebuke will be necessary. As long as sin is present, loving rebuke will be necessary. Let's actually, I'm going to have you guys repeat after me and say that back to me, okay? So repeat after me. As long as sin is present, loving rebuke will be necessary. Let's say it one more time. As long as sin is present, loving rebuke will be necessary. Now, I want to help you believe that this morning, that we all need to be rescued through loving rebukes at different times in our life. And so that's the title of this morning's sermon, Rescued Through Rebuke. Last week in the first part of Galatians 2, uh, we saw that believing in the gospel is what produces the fruit of freedom in Christ. We saw that Peter and Paul, they, they agreed on what the gospel is all about. It's about how God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And people come to be justified or declared right before God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Their doctrine, Peter and Paul's, their doctrine is correct. It's in line with one another. They both agree on the truth of the gospel. And yet here we see an instance where Peter's life gets out of line with the truth of the gospel. And I want you to see that he is rescued by God through the loving rebuke of Paul this morning. And so church, may we, you and I see that as long as sin is present, loving re- rebuke will be necessary so that every part of our lives might be aligned to the truth of the gospel for the glory of God and the good of his people. So let's pray and we'll start looking at this passage together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you are, a, you are a God who has revealed himself to us. You did not desire to, to remain a, a mystery or unknown to us, God. You have, you have given us the revelation of creation. You've given us the revelation of your word. And so we ask, God, that we would, that we would treasure your word being proclaimed this morning, that we would have hearts that would receive it, and that it would bear fruit in our lives. Father, I am a little hesitant in preaching on a tough topic like this because I don't know what everyone's past experiences have been. I don't know what all baggage we come in here this morning with. And so, God, just help me be faithful to your word. And would you empower me by your Holy Spirit? And may your word accomplish today all that you desire for it to accomplish. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me now at Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, his Aramaic name is Cephas, but we're talking about Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, this is Paul speaking, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray 
by their hypocrisy. Okay, so what's, what's going on here? Uh, Peter comes to Antioch, one of the hubs of the early church, and it's a church that is made up of believers who both have a Jewish and a Gentile background. And now remember, before Christ came, most Jewish people believed that it was forbidden to eat and fellowship with Gentiles. This wasn't specifically in the Old Testament law or anything like that, but because of some of the cleanliness laws, because of some of the dietary laws that the Old Testament law had, there were enough things that Jews would need to abstain from that Gentiles wouldn't, and therefore it just became this extra biblical rule to not eat with Gentiles. Also, eating meals together with someone, especially in the Jewish mindset, it was a display of fellowship and communion. It was a time of prayer and worship. And so you can understand why the Pharisees were so offended that Jesus had meals with tax collectors and sinners. They're thinking, I mean, aren't we supposed to separate ourselves from uncleanness? And what they couldn't understand was that Jesus came to make the unclean clean. And that's exactly what he did. But it took some time for believers, especially Jewish believers, to align their lives with that truth. But this is what we know about Peter's past, like leading up to this episode in Antioch. This is what we know about Peter's past from Acts 10. You don't need to go there. I'm just going to summarize it for you. But in Acts 10, God gives him a vision while Peter is praying, and he sees this great sheet descend from the sky with all kinds of animals, and he hears the voice of Jesus say, rise, Peter, kill and eat. All right, that's maybe a similar call. Many of you hunters here at the start of deer season is rise, kill, and eat, and you answer that and you go. But Peter says no to Jesus at first. He's like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna eat that unclean stuff. He's he's not gonna, he's not gonna eat those unclean foods. He knows he's not supposed to eat. But then God responds with uh, what God, Jesus responds with what God has made clean. Do not call unclean. And Peter awakens out of this vision to a knock at the door. There's messengers from Cornelius. Many of you know the story. Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a non-Jewish Gentile, just to clarify, has summoned Peter to his house. Peter goes to Cornelius' house, says, hey, you know it's unlawful for a Jew to fellowship with a Gentile, but God has just told me to not call any person unclean. Peter preaches the gospel of Christ that that everyone, both Jew and Gentile, who trust in Jesus will receive forgiveness of their sins. And while Peter is still proclaiming this, the Holy Spirit falls on them and everyone who hears believes and they're baptized and Peter stays with them for a few days, teaches them, fellowships with them, shares meals with them. And all the while that Peter is doing this, there are people back in Jerusalem who are criticizing him. As we see in Acts 11.3, their, their criticism of him is that you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And so you see, this, is, this was a difficult thing for people with a Jewish background to get in line with the truth of the gospel. It was so ingrained in them culturally to keep themselves separate from the Gentiles. But God wanted them to see that that all the cleanliness laws, all the dietary laws were showing people that their sin separated them from God and they needed the Holy One to come make them clean. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to make the unclean clean. And so all that background is just to say, here at this point in Galatians 2 verse 11 in Antioch, Peter already believes that Christ came to make the unclean clean. He already believes that he he shouldn't call anyone unclean that Christ has made clean. 
He believes that it is in line with the truth of the gospel to eat with Gentiles. Peter's already there. Intellectually, doctrinally, you were to read his statement of faith. He's, he's, we're sharing meals with Gentiles. He's already there. He's preaching and believing the same gospel Paul is preaching. But something happens here in Antioch. And it's not that his doctrine has changed. He's eating with the Gentiles, as he now does. He's enjoying this table fellowship, Jews and Gentiles all together, coming together, celebrating Jesus over a meal. I mean, Peter's thinking, this is great. He probably feels like he's walking on water, and he did know what that felt felt like. But then what happens in Antioch? Men came in from James, it says in verse 12. Probably not men directly sent by James because James was on board with the gospel of grace and the Gentiles being welcomed in. These were probably men who followed James and used his name for some authority. But these were men that thought Jewish customs needed to be added to the gospel for people to be saved. And Peter sees these men walk into the church picnic, and what happens? He starts to drown in fear. He's afraid of these men. He's afraid of the conflict and the storm that could be brewing with these men. And so he shrinks back. He separates himself from the Gentiles. He he takes up his plate or gets rid of whatever food he was eating, and he kind of scurries away to the corner, all because he's afraid. He's drowning in fear. And he's living like a hypocrite now, verse 13 says. The word hypocrite, it comes from the Greek theater where people put on masks and they act a certain part. Peter is play acting at this point. He doesn't really believe that he needs to separate himself from the Gentiles, but because he's afraid, he withdraws himself and he plays the part now of a hypocrite. And we see that in his hypocrisy... He's leading others astray as well. His hypocrisy leads others to also not live in line with the truth of the gospel. Other Jewish believers in the congregation, they follow his example and they withdraw themselves from the Gentiles. Paul says that even Barnabas is led astray. Barnabas, we talked about Barnabas last week, that great generous encourager of a man, Barnabas, even Barnabas is led astray. And so at this wonderful church fellowship meal, it turns into this division and separation of Jews now separating themselves from Gentiles, all because Peter is drowning in fear. And in that fear, he acts hypocritically. And that hypocrisy leads many astray. Now, before we get to how Paul responds... Let's just pause for a moment and and recognize and acknowledge that we can all relate to Peter a little bit, though, can't we? I mean, in this moment, he's not making a decision and living differently because his doctrine has changed. No, he's being misled and he's misleading others because his feelings have changed. He's afraid. Nothing has changed in his doctrine from the first part of chapter 2, where he was all on board with what Paul was preaching. What has changed is how he feels. 
These certain men walk into the room and they have caused him to feel afraid, just like he felt out on the sea when he started to sink. He's drowning now in fear, and specifically a fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare, church. Some of you, because of your fear of man, or because of another emotional feeling you have, your life has started to become misaligned with the truth of the gospel. You've started to make decisions not based upon what you know and believe about God, but instead based upon how you feel. And not only are you now going astray, but you're misleading others as well. Because when you're living in a way that doesn't align with the truth you believe, you are living like a hypocrite. And hypocrisy is one of the main ways we unintentionally lead others astray. Church, there are lots of reasons why some kids that are raised in Christian homes leave the faith, but I believe one of the main ones is the hypocrisy of their parents. They watch their parents come in here and affirm the truth of the gospel and celebrate grace and forgiveness and all the joy we have in Christ, and then they go home and see their parents live graceless, joyless, unforgiving lives. And that hypocrisy leads others astray. Your hypocrisy will mislead others astray, starting with your kids. If you are drowning in the fear of man or some other emotion, then play acting and living your life based on how you feel uh, is what you will end up doing instead of living your life and making decisions based on what you believe. All of a sudden now you're being led by your emotions and the feelings that you have in different circumstances and you're misleading yourself and others. And church, we all, just like Peter, we at times need to be rescued through a loving rebuke. And so Paul sees all this playing out at the church potluck And God's going to rescue Peter, Barnabas, the church in Antioch, the church in Galatia who's getting this letter. And I believe he's going to rescue the church in Franklin through the loving rebuke of Paul here. Look at verse 14, Galatians 2, 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step, not in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see, Paul Paul sees the conduct of Peter and these other brothers, and he sees that, that their conduct is not in line with the gospel. And therefore, verse 11, if you look back at verse 11, it says that he opposes Peter to his face. And at first read, especially if you're a person that doesn't love conflict and you don't like those uncomfortable conversations, you can just think that this is maybe a really mean, unnecessary interaction. But I want you to see that this is actually God's way of rescuing Peter in this situation. It is that this rescue is coming through the loving rebuke of Paul. 
says that he opposes Peter. He opposed Peter to his face. Now let's, let's define a, a few terms a little bit so that you understand what I mean when I'm talking about rebuke, okay? Uh, because this, the whole title of the sermon is that we are rescued through rebuke, that we all at times need a, to, to give and to receive loving rebuke. And the words reprove and rebuke are sometimes used interchangeably in the New Testament. Um, and so they're getting at a similar idea, but there are uh, some verses where they're both used in the verse. And so it's, it's helpful to differentiate them a little bit, even though there's some, some overlap. So for example, uh, in Paul's instruction to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Well, what do those words mean? Let's look at the next slide here. Some simple definitions. That word reprove, it means to expose or to convict Right? Using the illustration we've been using, essentially to, to show and reveal what's out of line with the truth. Okay? To rebuke, it means to admonish or warn forcefully as expressing strong disapproval. Or you could say to give a strong warning and, and disapprove about what's out of line with the truth. So what's been exposed, and then you giving a strong warning saying, hey, if you continue down this path, it's not leading to good things. It's a rebuke. And to exhort means to strongly encourage a response or action. This is sort of the positive side of things. It's to strongly encourage what would be in line with the truth. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, 2 Timothy 4, verse 2 is specifically for, for pastors, but we will see that we all need to be able to both give and receive loving rebuke because as long as sin is present, loving rebuke will be necessary. And we will talk in a moment about how to rightly give and receive loving rebuke, but first we need to see where we can find loving rebuke. Because it doesn't just come in a meeting with the pastors or getting called out at a church picnic. No, the regular and the normal and the daily way we receive rebuke is by the power of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the Word. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so, yes, this looks like sitting under the preaching of the word on Sunday mornings, like you all are doing this morning. You, you, have, you have brought yourself to sit under the word of God and to be reproved, rebuked, and exhorted by the word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing for the believer to sit under the preaching of the word. But this should also be happening every day of the week. When we sit with the Word of God and we pray and we read and we pray and we read and we pray and we meditate on God's truth, there should be times in the Word where God is convicting you and rebuking you and correcting you. One of the reasons so many people don't handle rebuke well is likely that they aren't regularly allowing themselves to sit under the ministry of the Word and be rebuked by the Word. 
This should be a regular experience for us. Too many people view the word as a window to look through and see all the imperfections of the person sitting next to them as opposed to a mirror and let it shine all the light and imperfections in ourselves. And again, that shouldn't lead to shame. That should lead to confession and repentance and glorying in Christ and, and remembering the gospel. But you see, it is the person who regularly allows themselves to be rebuked by the Lord through the word. It is that type of person who will be in the best position to both give and receive rebuke in a healthy and in a loving way. Because, church, this is something that we are all called to do, not just pastors. In Luke 17, 3, Jesus said, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. We're all called to this church. And we're, we're called to do this not because we hate people or not because we want to be mean to people, but because we love people. Proverbs 3.12 It says, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. If we love people, then we will reprove, rebuke, and exhort because that's what God does, and we want to have hearts like his. Now, here's where we also need to define another biblical term, because this oftentimes gets confused with rebuke, because they both initially feel the same. And because they feel the same, we think that they are the same. But we must understand that rebuking is not the same as reviling. And so some of you, you might think that you're a good rebuker, and you're actually a reviler. And some of you think you've been reviled, and you've actually been rebuked. And so it's good to understand these terms. We've got the revile up there on the screen. To revile is to abuse someone verbally. And let me just say, for those of you that have have experienced uh, being reviled in the name of it being a loving rebuke, and you've been abused verbally by someone in the church or a leader in the church, let me just say, I'm, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Lots of times, loving rebuke gets done in in not great ways. But I also want to show you that many times we also don't receive loving rebuke the way we're supposed to receive it. But let's understand that rebuke and reviling are different things, all right? And so we'll, we'll get back into how to, how to uh, give and receive rebuke. But rebuke and reviling are different things. Uh, they feel the same when you get them at first, but they are very, very different. And here, here are the differences. Uh, When you rebuke someone, you are motivated by love. When you revile someone, you are motivated by hate. When you rebuke someone, it's based on truth. When you revile someone, it's based on false information or false feelings. When you rebuke someone, you are respectful and gentle. When you revile someone, you are mean and insulting. When you rebuke someone, you are humble and realize that you could someday need to be rebuked on this same issue. When you revile someone, you are proud and you could never imagine doing what this person has done or needing corrected yourself. When you rebuke someone, you seek their restoration 
when you revile someone, you seek their destruction. When you are lovingly rebuked, it hurts, but in the end, it helps. When you are reviled, it hurts, and in the end, it harms. Do you see the difference, church, between rebuke and revile? We are to seek after loving rebuke. Well, how do we give and receive a loving rebuke? To some degree, you should follow Paul's example. Paul says in verse 11 that he opposed Peter to his face. A good example to follow here. You see, many times when we think someone needs rebuked, we like to oppose them behind their back. And Paul opposes them to his face. You don't go behind someone's back. You go to them directly out of love for that person. Nothing good comes from going behind someone's back who is in need of a loving rebuke. And the reason that I say to some degree you follow Paul's example is because he rebukes Peter very publicly at a church fellowship meal. And let me just say, in most circumstances, that would not be the most appropriate thing for us to do, okay? Unless we just really want people to not come to our picnics any longer. But most of the time, most of the time, we should follow the instructions that Jesus lays out for us in Matthew 18. I'll let you go look at those later on this week, where he instructs us to go in private and talk with someone one-on-one about a concern that we have. If they're still unrepentant in their sin, if they still don't listen to you, then we take another or brother or sister with us, and we go to them and talk with them and plead with them and, and, and present God's word to them. If they still are living in unrepentant sin and they don't listen to to two brothers or sisters, it's only then that we would take it to the church or to the leadership of the church. And again, we would be doing it for the sake of their own good, out of love for them, based on truth. But most loving rebukes take place one-on-one between two people who love each other. The reason that here in Galatians 2, Paul gives a public rebuke is because Peter, is a, he's a leader in the church, and he's publicly misleading others. And it's having a, a, an immediate harmful effect on the church. And so Paul sees that this needs to be addressed right now, publicly, for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of the church, and for the sake that, that, that the early church would not be divided and go its separate ways. Paul sees the potential great harm that is happening, and so he lovingly rebukes publicly right away. But in most circumstances for us, it would look best to go to someone one-on-one and to share where we're concerned or where we're seeing someone's life is not in line with the truth of the gospel. A couple of years ago, one of our uh, pastors in our church planting network, Harbor Network, uh, they gave me a call just to check in on me, see, see how things were going, see how I was doing. I really appreciate our network in that way. They give really good pastoral care and support. And, uh, and I was just talking. I forget exactly even what all was going on and sharing, sharing a little of my heart, sharing what was going on. And, and this pastor in, in the phone conversation just very gently and lovingly says, um, hey, Grant, it, it maybe sounds like there's some resentment starting to build up in your heart. Um, don't go down that path. And at first I was like, 
no, I, I, you know, I think you're probably off on this. Uh, maybe I'm just hungry. I probably need a sandwich, a nap. Uh, I like to think that I'm not that emotionally complex. A few things can solve most of my problems. Uh, and so I was thinking, nah, I think you're off base on that, but I'll pray about it. And, you know, thanks for trying. Uh, and hung up, went and prayed and sought the Lord. And pretty quickly, the Lord's like, yeah. Yeah, he's seeing that guy who loves you, who took the time to speak some truth into your life. He's, he's seeing something that you're not seeing right now. And so later I had to call him back and just thank him. Like, thank you. Thank you for saying something. And that, that rebuke, again, it was, it was simple, it was loving, it was gentle, and, and, but that rebuke has, has borne fruit in my life now for a couple years after. I'm still thinking of that quick, loving, gentle rebuke of just a warning of like, hey, I'm hearing this, this doesn't seem like it's in line with the truth of the gospel, and don't go down that path. Don't go there. You see, God rescued me in that moment through a loving rebuke from a brother. And most loving rebukes, church, they can be given in a a one-on-one relationship, in a loving setting. And so how else are we to give a loving rebuke? Well, 2 Timothy 4.2, a verse I've already mentioned where it says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. If someone is not causing an immediate or serious harm to themselves or to others, the rebuke should be then pursued with complete patience. Patience. Pray for that person. Encourage that person. Maybe teach that person. Teach them the truth. Make sure they're sitting under the ministry of the word, both corporately and privately. Listen, if you are eager to rebuke someone, you are probably not ready to rebuke them. Like, go, go take a nap, go eat a sandwich, go walk in the woods. But if if you're sitting in here right now on the edge of your seat, just waiting for this service to get over so you can go get your rebuke on, please do not do that. You're not ready, okay? If you are eager to rebuke, you're not in the right spot you need to be to rebuke. And eagerness to rebuke probably means you are not to rebuke at that moment because we should rebuke patiently. Patiently. And then look at what Paul will later on write to the Galatians. Flip over to Galatians 6. We won't have this on the screen, but you're already in Galatians. Flip to Galatians 6. We're going to come back to this uh, when we get to Galatians 6. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see, church, rebuke is gentle, not harsh. Now, let's understand gentleness. Gentleness is strength that is under control. Gentleness is strength that is under control. But this doesn't mean that rebuke still isn't going to hurt, okay? But but gentleness is is you're not you're not flying off the handle, out of control, just rebuking everyone left and right, or no, no. Gentleness is strength under control. Patiently, lovingly, humbly, gently rebuking someone. But this doesn't mean that it's still not going to hurt. 
And this gets really tricky for us who live in an age of hypersensitivity and emotional fragility. And church, let me just say, I think we as a people, we could grow in our, both our emotional self-control and our emotional resiliency. And I think that is true for our men, women, and children. And that's something I've started praying for us as a church. Help us be a bit more emotional resilient and, both, and a bit more emotionally self-controlled. Because you see, a common lie in our culture... And this was actually something I read from Rosaria Butterfield uh, that she writes in one of those books that we have out there. She writes that a common lie in our culture right now is that it's okay to reject truth, not because it's false, but because it hurts. This is, this is the water we swim in. And I, I can testify to that teaching a bioethics class at Franklin College right now. I experience this, that it is okay and justifiable for everyone to reject truth, not because they can say that it's false or prove it's false, but because they don't like how it feels. Some people think they are justified in rejecting truth, not because it's false, but because it hurts and they don't agree. And therefore, loving rebuke, yes, it comes in the spirit of gentleness. It comes with a strength that is under control. But even the most gentle orthodontist in the world, if he places a retainer in there, it's going to hurt if the teeth are out of line. Loving rebuke, though, is gentle. It's under control. It's, it's done in a spirit of humility. Like Galatians 6 goes on to say, it says, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I was told by an older, wiser, more experienced pastor to never go correct someone if I can't honestly say, if not for the grace of God, I could fall into this same sin. If you can't say that, if you don't believe that, you are not in the right spot to go rebuke that person. Call someone else to do it. If you think that you are somehow above the sin of someone else and you can't believe that they would do this, like, oh, how could they? You're probably not ready to rebuke. But if you can come in and love with a desire to rescue someone from harm, with humility, with patience, with gentleness, then you might be ready to rebuke. But there's one more requirement for a loving rebuke. And we see this in Luke 17, 3, a verse I've already shown you where Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, get this, forgive him. We are only ready to rebuke if we are also ready to forgive. You guys with me on this? We are only ready to rebuke if we are also ready to forgive. Sometimes people go and they correct someone or sometimes someone sits under the ministry of the word and they're convicted, their hearts are exposed, they see their waywardness, they see what's out of line with the truth of the gospel and they repent and now we should celebrate and feast and party. But no, now there's a person who's gonna hold on to the grudge and not let that person off the hook that easy. You gotta make them still pay. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Forgive him. And if you don't, prepare yourselves to receive a loving rebuke from your pastors. And so how should we receive loving rebuke? We've talked some about how to give it. How should we receive loving rebuke? Well, maybe the first point is that we should receive it. 
We should receive it and not reject it right away, not dismiss it right away, but receive it. Many times, instead of receiving it, we typically respond with getting defensive and retaliating and just rejecting it altogether. But how did Peter receive this? I mean, Peter is one of the apostles. He's one of the leaders in the church. He was in Jesus' inner three. And here, he's, he's showing us that all of us, even an apostle at times, needs to receive a loving rebuke. No one is above this. We all are going to need this at times. But think about Peter. I mean, he could have responded with, I mean, are you kidding me, Paul? After all you did persecuting the church, you're going to call me out on some table etiquette? Weren't you just the guy throwing people in prison and like all my friends' families are mourning over all the havoc you wreaked on the church? You're going to call me out on this? Is that how Peter responded? We don't know exactly how Peter responded in this moment, but what we do know is that Paul and Peter went on to have a good relationship and a good partnership together in ministry, and so we know that he does receive Paul's rebuke. And he changes course. He corrects. He, he sees what was out of line with the truth of the gospel, and he, by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, corrects that. And so, church, we, we humbly need to receive rebuke. We need to take it to the Lord, prayerfully consider not so much how we feel about it, but whether or not if it's true or not. And we need to be humble enough to see that many times it is true. And, and for all the times that it's not true, even if 90% is off base, I'm guessing that 10% of it the Lord could use in your life to some degree. Not everyone's rebuke, like, Hits, hits the target, right? We know Peter rebuked Jesus, and he was kind of way off on that one. Jesus calls him out. Jesus can call him out because Jesus is perfect. Sometimes we might receive rebuke, and it might not be 100% right, but if it's done in a loving way, humbly way, like God can use even, even the part of that that is true to do a great work in our life, to rescue us from our sin. And so we have to humbly and graciously receive loving rebuke. But church, here's, here's the thing. This has to be a church-wide commitment. We have to, as a church, commit to this. And this is something we're talking about with the elders, about maybe updating our, our church covenant and just getting on the same page about what we're agreeing to when we become members here in this body. Because this has to be something that we're on the same page about and that we're committed to. And the reason, one of the reasons, is because of the truth that we learn in Proverbs 9, verse 8, where it says, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. At different times in church life, if no one else does it, and it falls on the pastors to do it, a scoffer will need to be reproved and rebuked. It's not a matter of if this will happen, it's when will this happen next. The pastors will need to reprove, rebuke, and exhort a scoffer, and if they don't repent, I'm telling you, the scoffer will hate us, as Proverbs 9 says it will, they will. And in that hate, they will come to you, and they will slander us, because we held Scripture up to their life, and we were concerned that there were some misalignments there. And I'm telling you, we, we won't do it perfectly, but we will as an elder team. We'll, we'll strive to do it motivated by love, based upon the truth of Scripture. We'll strive to do it humbly, graciously, patiently, 
gently on the edge of our seats, ready to forgive and restore. But it will hurt. And some people will take that hurt and they will bring it to you. And you will have to decide if you are going to join them in their hatred of truth or if you will speak truth into their life and be able to say something like, hey, I know, I know it hurts, but let me help you discern if you just got rebuked or reviled. Let, let, let's go to the word of God and let's discern this together. Was this a rebuke or was this a reviling? First, do you think it was motivated by love? Did, did there seem to be an element of, of love motivating this? Was it, was it based upon a scriptural truth? Was it based upon truth? Not just opinions, but actually truth. Were they, were they respectful and gentle? Were they under control, not flying off the handle? Were, were they humble? The people that spoke to you, were they, were they humble? Were, were they seeking restoration? Were they trying to rescue you from some harm they saw coming down your, your path? And if you can help them discern those things, then if all that's true, it sounds like, brother, you got rebuked, not reviled. And if one of the brothers or sisters in here or the pastors in here rebuked you, it must mean that they love you. Because you realize the easiest thing for a pastor to do is just to say whatever and kind of move on with our day. And so if you're sitting with someone and you can talk them through, like you mean someone sat with you and cried with you and showed you the scripture they've been praying over your life for the last few months and years where they felt like your life was out of line with the truth of the gospel, like don't you see the loving hand of Christ reaching down to you to rescue you through this rebuke? We got to help one another see it, church. We got to help one another discern what is true rebuke, what is loving rebuke, and what is reviling. Because as long as sin is present, loving rebuke will be necessary. And Peter needed rescued by God through Paul's loving rebuke. Each of the pastors here at this church, at one time in the last six years of our church life, each of us have been rebuked by the others or rebuked by someone in the church. And it's been hard. It's, been, it, it, it's hurt but we've grown through it. It's been a good thing for us. The apostle Peter needed rescued through rebuke. The Galatian church needed to be rescued through rebuke. This whole letter is like the apostle Paul's rebuke of the Galatian church. And so church, you need to understand that both you and I at times will need to both give and receive loving rebuke. But as we're giving and receiving it, this is the image that we need to visualize. Because let me remind you, this isn't the first time Peter was drowning in fear, needing to be rescued. This isn't the first time for Peter. Look up on the screen at Matthew 14, verse 27 and 23. We're closing with this because this needs to be the image that we think of when we think of a loving rebuke. Peter has been rescued through rebuke before. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come, out, come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. He walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. 
And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Oh, church, see the hand of Christ coming to you to rescue you from drowning in your fear and to rescue you from your hypocrisy, to rescue you from your sin, to rescue you from your pursuit of self-righteousness. Christ's hand comes to you through the loving rebuke of his word and through the loving rebuke of your brothers and sisters, not to harm you, but to help you, to rescue you. He's not coming down to beat you down into the ground or dunk your head further underwater. No, he's giving you a hand to lift you up. Oh, see the grace of God that he rescues us through loving rebukes. And so let me ask you this. Church, how are you living right now that is not in line with the truth of the gospel? Are you living and making decisions based upon how you feel or based upon what you believe to be true? And I would encourage you this morning to ask God to reprove, rebuke, and exhort you today with his word. Because church, as long as sin is present, loving rebuke will be necessary so that every part of our lives might be aligned to the truth of the gospel for the glory of God and the good of his people. Let's pray.